the, the really interesting piece of that is today we don't have any of that infrastructure. You can't run a smart contract for a company that wants to automate their supply chain or the manufacturing processes, for example. You can't automate that on a core banking system in a bank. It is net new technology and infrastructure that's required. So um, when we see what's happening in the crypto space and CBDCs and, mm -hmm. and this type of thing, people have to understand that it's not about just building digital money. Um, it's about the fact that you can't use traditional dollars, fiat currency, the pound, euro, to run smart contracts in an automated fashion. It works a little differently. You have to have rollbacks that, you know, you have to have certain protections in, you know, um, how do you deal with transactions that are not initiated by a human, but are initiated by an algorithm? Do, you know, how do you have to sign mm -hmm. those and authenticate those, et cetera? Um, and, you know, how does that smart contract get managed? Where do you cross over from, you know, traditional fiat, currencies in a traditional bank account and they those get moved into the smart contract ecosystem mm -hmm. you know all of all of this uh you know there's a lot of questions around but i would say we're just at the very start of our conceptualizing mm. of what what this sort of world will be but you know it, by 2050 probably half of uh, um, you know developed economies will be automated Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Heads Talk with me, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter, the podcast where we talk to C-level executives, leaders of institutions and heads of multinationals. What are the current topics they talk? We listen. Can you imagine getting into a business or a market where you actually spend a hundred billion plus on a piece of paper? Are you kidding me? It was like a frying pan of the head. I got nothing against CFOs. It was not just the job of a lifetime, it was the job of a thousand lifetimes. My guest today was inducted into the FinTech Hall of Fame by the reputable organization CB Insight. A celebrated futurist, prominent media figure, and international best-selling author, he has left an indelible mark on the global stage. Providing advice to the Obama administration on FinTech, he received acknowledgement from President Xi Jinping for the impact of his book, Augmented, highlighting his influence. If that's not enough, he's a busy and successful entrepreneur that we here at Headstall are happy to have on the show. But before we get into that, here's a brief message. This episode is sponsored by Axia. Axia is the leading private cloud platform in the Alessian and Matamos ecosystem, combining intelligent solutions with security and control. Axia's clients profit from digitalization and automation of critical business processes in a cloud and hybrid architecture. 150 staff provide migration, engineering, and support services to over 200 leading organizations in 32 countries. Heads Talk Podcast with your host, Elaine Pringle Schwitter. Brett King is the founder of Moven, a globally recognized mobile startup that raised over $40 million, $40 million US dollars, I should say. Moven achieved a milestone by launching the first in-app mobile bank account available globally. Renowned for delivering keynotes in over 50 countries at prestigious events and appearing on major international networks like CNBC and BBC, his insights resonate globally. Beyond his role as the host of the world's number one fintech radio show, Breaking Banks, with a vast audience of 6.5 million listeners across 180 countries, he's managed to acquire a plethora of awards and accolades to include being voted the world's number one financial services influencer 
by the financial brand. Brett's literary success includes the top 10 nonfiction book in North America, Augmented Life in the Smart Lane, and the enduring bestseller in banking, Bank 4.0. His latest work, The Rise of Techno-Socialism, released in November 2021, adds to his influential body of work, solidifying his position as a thought leader in the industry. Let's have a conversation now. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Brett to Headstalk. Delighted to have you here today. Thank you for that very uh, kind introduction. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Okay, um, let's get right into this. Um, I hear uh, and see and read uh, a lot of people these days with the with this title. You've even got a network with the very name that is Futurist. What is the Futurist Network? What is a Futurist? A good question. Um, you know, the easy answer is someone that is looking to the future, trying to either create, build, or imagine the future. Um, the Futurist Network itself is, uh, you know, a really. You know, we, we've been associating, our team has been associating with all these world-class, you know, future thinkers, science mm -hmm. fiction authors, uh, you know, rocket scientists, uh, geneticists, and so forth, that are working on technologies that's going to take us into the future. And we wanted to showcase um, these people, you know, and, and their experiences and really just get people inspired and excited about the future. Because mm -hmm. right now, with the impact of artificial intelligence, you know, um, the emerging impact of climate change, economic pressure, there's a lot of uncertainty about the future. So we have taken it upon ourselves to gather together the world's most influential and smartest futurists mm -hmm. to um, have this conversation with the general public. Um, what were futurists doing sort of 10, 15 years ago? Well, you know, there's been futurists around, you know, for that time. I mean, if you if you look back, um, there are very well-known futurists. Um, you know, some of them are science fiction authors. Let's take Gene Roddenberry, um, you know, with Star Trek, Imagining the Future. <laughs> Obviously, we use our flip phones that were inspired yes. by Star yes. Trek and, yes. and, and other things. I think everything um, but... was inspired by Star Trek. Yeah, exactly. Um, but you know, you have you have others like Isaac Asimov, uh, you know, who who imagined uh, the world of robotics and and created this, uh, you know, the three laws of of robotics and so forth. So um, there have been plenty of people thinking about the future. It's not just science fiction authors, of course. I mean, the Human Genome Project, as an example, mm -hmm. was a project to bring the future closer. And now today, we can sequence the human genome for, you know, for uh, dollars, you know, instead of the billions that cost to do the first uh, human genome sequencing. Mm -hmm. And that's led to all these breakthroughs in um, now in gene therapy and, you know, identifying uh, the, the root causes of various diseases mm -hmm. and so forth. So I think um, generally you could argue that over the last two or 300 years, huma humanity as a whole has been very focused on moving us towards the future. And, you know, our system of, of capitalism and economics, the way we think about technology and growth um, are all elements of that. But I think the one area where we need to do more work on is think about about what the future means for us as a species and philosophically start thinking about whether we're working on the right things. Mm -hmm. Okay, thanks for that. Um, as mentioned in the introduction, you are a prolific and successful author. Congratulations. Um, I, I want to talk about the, the Bank series. Um, this is the sort of the enduring series. I, I, I want you to talk me through them. First, sort of tell my listeners about this series. When 
did you write 2.0, Bank 2.0? The reasons behind it yeah. is content and the reception, I assume, that obviously led to Bank 3.0. Well, um, Bank 2 actually came out in April 2010. We launched it at the Asian Banking Summit. So, yeah, it is quite a while ago. Um, mm -hmm. But, of course, that set my career on a different path because it did end up being a bestseller in, like, 20 countries. Um, mm -hmm. And at that time, you know, there was obviously the emergence of social media. We had the app world emerging. You know, Bitcoin had emerged a couple of years before that. So there were a lot of very interesting things happening. The word fintech was started starting to yeah. be bandied around. Um, and there were a lot of people in the trenches working on digital who were meeting resistance and apathy in you know in within banks um regarding the shift towards digitization and so i'd been working um for organizations like hsbc on mm -hmm. strategy for um you know almost a decade at that point and one of the the things that i did for hsbc back in around 2005 was write a report on what the bank would look like in 2020 mm -hmm. and um the process of going to their headquarters in Canary Wharf and presenting that to the leadership of the bank and all of those sorts of things helped me realize that there was a great deal of education work required to help the banking industry understand how significant um, digital transformation was going to be. The fact that it was going to completely change, you know, what it means to be a bank. And so that's why I started that, that series. Um, and uh, as you said, you know, it led to Bank 3.0. And then in mm -hmm. between, I did uh, a, a ebook called Brash Day Gone Tomorrow and um, Breaking Banks, which was looking mm -hmm. at the fintechs uh, in, in the space. And then uh, five years ago, I, I released Bank 4.0. Yeah. Um, and that's that's still in the top 10 best-selling banking books on Amazon in the US today. So it's, mm -hmm. it's had excellent longevity. Um, and I'm working on Bank 5.0 for uh, next year. But these errors of banking that we talk about uh, can you know, easily be uh, explained as you know, 1.0 being traditional banking, mm -hmm. 2.0 being um, what we would traditionally call multi-channel banking. But that was the emergence of call centers, ATM machines, and then eventually the internet. It was focused mostly on self-service capabilities. Mm -hmm. Then the mobile era, banking with smartphones and apps. You know, so that's the 3.0 era. Mm -hmm. And the 4.0 era, which we're in today, is really this embedded banking era. So where we're seeing things like embedded mobile wallets in phones. Um, we are starting to uh, see contextualized credit and savings. So things mm -hmm. like buy now, pay later. So you don't have to go to a bank. It's just, you know, that the utility of banking is available for you when and where you need it. And then talking about new technologies, not, not just like the smartphone, but smart glasses or AI and how we will interact with a bank when we can talk to our bank instead of having mm -hmm. to go to the bank. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, really this trajectory we've been on over the last, um, you know, 60 years or so. So I'm assuming Bank 5.0, that will contain sort of AI and generative AI and all yes. that. Yes. All right. Yeah. Okay. Well, if you think about if if you think about um where we go from here, um and, and you know if if there's you've got listeners that are familiar with the banking industry from working yep. inside it, then you know the reality is there's almost no function within a bank today that won't be affected by artificial intelligence over the next twenty or thirty years. 
So if you were to take one of the largest banks in the world, like ICBC or uh, JP Morgan Chase, and, and you know you say, well, you know, what does Chase look like today? You know, there are one hundred and sixty thousand strong employee organization, but what do they look like in twenty fifty if they still survive? And most likely, it's just going to be a handful of people directing algorithms that are the bank effectively. Um, so you know, um, I mean, ultimately. Uh, you know, I think most of what we think of as banking functions today will be mm -hmm. completely automated in the 2040s and 2050s because mm -hmm. the most efficient form of money transfer and business operations will be autonomous-based uh, operations such as smart contracts mm -hmm. and mm. smart marketplaces. And that means that banks are that, that infrastructure, but that infrastructure is in code. It's not with branches or pieces of paper or pieces of plastic. Mm. I suppose... By that very nature, hundreds of thousands of people will have to develop new skills and move elsewhere in the either outside of the banking world or in the banking world as such. I think uh, that's true for for many industries that are faced with you know levels high levels of automation. and I, I think um you know ultimately, that's why you hear a lot of uh, players in the space, such as you know the you know Elon Musk and Zuckerberg and you know yeah. Bill Gates talk about the need for something like a universal basic income because of the potential disruption that AI and automation yeah. might have. Hmm. Hmm. okay, you, you've got another book out. Um, it's not part of the series, but it's called the Rise of techno socialism i thought it was quite an interest, interesting title do you want to just briefly tell us about that more sure um so you mentioned in the intro um, the book that ended up on president g's bookshelf yes. during his national address augmented so augmented was um you know i i would say it's the book i you know, it, it's the book i always wanted to write and um you know it, it's sort of it's very much futurist there's there's a bit of banking stuff in it but it's mainly talking about how we will live with these technologies of the future so how we'll live when we have medical science and ex can extend our our, uh, our our lifespan mm -hmm. um you know living with a, a personal ai that can sort of respond to our every need and and gets to know us intimately and and um you know molds its uh, responses to to our behavior uh you know or autonomous vehicles, uh, drones that deliver you pizza, you know, all, all of these, uh, these sorts of elements, you know, uh, virtual reality technologies that we can immerse ourselves in, you know, computers that are, um, you know, are smarter than the average human, et cetera, right? Mm -hmm. But um, the problem with that view of the world, as I put that together in the book, is that, um, it, you know, the technology things are in somewhat easier to predict in terms of how they're going to affect individuals' behaviors or how that's going to impact your life, because it's just trend watching. It's just forecasting those trends. And when you, we've got Moore's Law going back uh, to the 60s and other things. So we've got some basis for those trending forecasts. But mm -hmm. the bigger question is, how does the world change? How does our economics change, our governance, you know, um, yeah. you know, socio-political uh, establishment and so forth? And it's not just artificial intelligence impacting that. It's climate change. It's pandemics. Um, and more critically, the big, big emerging problem um, in Western society is inequality. Mm -hmm. And so I really wanted to sort of tackle that and look at the possible emerging systems that are going to come out of this 
economic uncertainty provided by these sort of drivers of change and explore which of those are sort of the most likely um, outcomes. Mm, Okay. Um, You know, we we could do a podcast just on your achievements over the years, but but I'd like to ask about one of the many um, that really interests me. That's your induction into the FinTech Hall of Fame. Tell us about this. When did when did this happen? This was in 2020. Um, CB Insights, of course, is a great research player uh, generally in in terms of, sort of the emerging startup space. And uh, this came as a, a little bit of a surprise to me, but it was a pleasant surprise. Um, mm-hmm. But it was their first year that they created the FinTech Hall of Fame. They've been running it since. Mm-hmm. And um, I was, you know, I was, I was very uh, pleased to um, uh, have, have been recognized in that manner. You know, I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I started in fintech before it was called fintech. Um, <laughs> yeah. And as, as you mentioned at the out, outbreak of the, the start of the show is, you know, I, I worked on the very first mobile challenger bank concept in the world back in 2010 called Movin, or we, you know, actually changed it to Movin Bank initially, but um, we couldn't have the word bank in the name because of the regulatory mm-hmm. issues. So, you know, we just called it Movin. Um, and then, um, you know, I, I run a podcast. It's been the number one podcast in the fintech space for 10 years now. So I feel like I've really been involved in that community, you know, since day one. It's mm-hmm. something I've been very passionate about. So I, you know, I was delighted that uh, when when they did the the Hall of Fame that mm-hmm. um, they added my name with, with you know, um, half a dozen other other oh, people in well. that as well. So, that's yeah. well, how many a year gets... Um, this accolade of fint- being put in the fintech hall of fame, what twenty? 30? Yeah, I think it's five or six. Oh right, year. okay. Yeah. And it started in twenty twenty. So okay, correct. So um, yeah. Um, so I, you know, look, I've 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 always tried to give back to the community. You know, I've I've put a lot of time, ten years, uh, doing this podcast. Um, yeah. you know, breaking banks, and that's uh, every week that we release content and we've been doing that for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you, you, I'm sure, you know, the podcast business doesn't make a lot of money generally, not unless you're Joe Rogan. Right. So <laughs> yeah. it, it is more of a labor of love often more often than not. But, um, you know, that's because I, I, I you know, from the outset, um, uh, you know, I knew this was going to be the big moment of disruption for banking. Mm-hmm. And today, um, you know, when we look around the world, you've got these fintechs who are household names like Nubank and Revolut, and, you know, Monzo, Starling, um, WeBank, and the the mobile wallet schemas, Alipay, WeChat Pay, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And in fact, today, more people use a mobile wallet to make daily payments than they do an artifact that they got from a bank, you know, or a yeah. bank account, as yeah. you like. So, um, you know, it has been an incredible 20 years or so of just continuous technology disruption in the space. Mm, excellent. Um, okay, um, a change of direction. Let's talk a little bit about VCs, startups and investment in fintech. Um, what does the landscape look like at the moment in fintech and the subsets? And where is the focus the most in terms of sort of geographical region, service lines or even technology? There, I mean, 2020 and 2021, it was an extraordinary time for fintech investment. It wasn't just because of the whole pandemic, but a lot of those early fintech businesses that started in 2013 and 2014 were coming to fruition and mm-hmm. you know, really, you know, um, growing. Um, so uh, one fifth of all venture capital in 2020 and 2021 went into fintechs. So that's uh, mm-hmm. um, you know just amazing numbers. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, hundreds of billions of dollars. But that has slowed down. 
having said that, you know, we have some fintechs that, for example, in 2022, um, it was thought that Affirm and Klarna, who were the major names behind Buy Now, Pay Later, mm-hmm. you know, the industry sort of said, well, they're done. That failed. And now we have Klarna is about to IPO. You know, they'll probably raise, you know, $40, $40 billion for their mm-hmm. IPO. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, um, they've, they've come back. And you have seen some some fairly big funding rounds for mm-hmm. uh, some of the uh, the mainstays in the space. You know, mm-hmm. um, Nubank is um, in, in LATAM. Um, you know, which got a lot of attention in the VC market because of Warren Buffett's investment pre-IPO. They now have 90 million customers. They're, they're the largest bank in Latin America by number of customers. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're still the fastest growing, even though they're almost twice the size of their next um, biggest competitor, which is Itao, a hundred-year-old bank in the space. Mm-hmm. So um, there's still still uh, there's still strong potential for investment in fintech, but of course uh, it has matured. Um, and the next phase of VC attention is going into AI mm-hmm. as we would put it in the fintech space. Now, there is need for specialization in artificial intelligence in the financial services space. You can't have hallucinations when it comes to financial transactions. So we need a different type of artificial intelligence um, when it comes to mm-hmm. um, you know the banking and, and finance space. Mm-hmm. So I do expect there's going to be a boom in investment in there. And secondly, um, I do think, and it's going to take a little bit longer, but uh, with the release of uh, Apple's Vision Pro, we are starting to see spatial computing, augmented reality, and VR emerge. And that's also going to produce a whole wave of new startups focusing on visual, you know, spatial elements of, of banking and financial services. And ultimately, I think you know, in, in say five or 10 years time, when you're wearing smart glasses around instead of a smartphone, mm-hmm. um, that, you know, um, the primary elements, you know, one of the primary roles of, um, uh, you know, from a, from a, uh, experience perspective will be helping you manage your money in that sort of spatial computing environment, you know, in the head up display. So when you walk into a grocery store, you'll get a message. If you don't have enough money to you know, buy your groceries today, you know, mm-hmm. you'll be given an option. Or when you walk into a Tesla ship, you'll be able to see, you know, what the monthly payments would be if you bought a specific model of Tesla. Tesla, mm-hmm. or, you know, if you walk into a, a listed real estate property, you know, and your, your glasses will, will give you a home financing offer. So I do think that, um, you know, you're going to see highly contextualized financial services with a combination of artificial intelligence and things like smart glasses, mm-hmm. but primarily because most of what we think of as banking today will be embedded in a personalized mobile wallet or cloud-based wallet that you know, sort of ma- helps us manage our money. And not not only finances will be in there, you know, maybe our healthcare data, you know, our genome, things like that might be in there, other data that we might um, use to trade for better services and things like that. Um, you know, our, our mobile wallet is really going to be our personal interface for the way we think mm-hmm. about our, mm-hmm. our assets and so forth. You said investments are slowed. I would say maybe predominantly in Europe, the USA. But would you agree it's slowed in the emerging markets in sort of South South America, Latin America, in um, some parts of Asia, the African continent? Would you say investment is slowed in the fintech space as much as it has in, in, in Europe and the US? Um, 
You know, yes and no. I mean, there are pockets of activity now. Um, you know, for example, you know, just in the last couple of years, you have had some very interesting things happening. So Thailand now is the number one country in the world for QR payments with a national scheme they call Prompt Pay. And that really came out of sort of looking at what Alipay was doing and so forth, and the banks all adopting that as a schema. Um, you have PixPay in Brazil, which I think is up to like 70% of the population uses this for payments today, um, particularly person-to-person -person payments. And that's incredible rate of adoption in, in, in just two years. Mm -hmm. So um, there is still um, sort of infrastructure elements of investment. There are new types of specialization, um, you know, emerging uh, for certain fintechs. Um, but, you know, the, the investment in these emerging markets is tending to be um, more localization or catching up in terms mm. of mm. what we've seen in, in the West. One, uh, there's, there's sort of one exception to that, which is the Middle East right now. Um, in the Middle East, there's a massive investment going into things like wallet infrastructure and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. you know, the, yeah. the first unicorn yeah. in, in Saudi was a mobile wallet system, oh, STC right. pay. Yeah. Oh, sorry to interrupt you there, Brett, but it just prompted something. That I think you posted on LinkedIn about a new piece of advisory work that you're doing with the team at um, Barak, I think. Barack, yes. On the yes. next generation of super wallets, because you mentioned super wallets and went, bing, this was in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> would, you, would you like to elaborate on this for my listeners? Sure. Um, so actually, it's it, the you know uh, I um, helped build the technology for STC Pay, which is the um, the largest mobile wallet in the in the GCC or the Gulf region, um, and that was started by Saudi Telecom, hence the STC, and the founder of of that. Uh, um, business or the CEO of that business left STC a couple of years ago and he's built this new um, competitor, if you like, and has asked me to join the advisory board, which I've been happy to do. I also um, advise the Saudi Central Bank and the Money Monetary Authority there. I'm on faculty for the Finance Academy, which is the central bank's uh, own um, you know, professional uh, academy that they have for training in Saudi. And, um, you know, I've done, I just did work recently with, um, you know, Emirates NBD and we produce a podcast for commercial bank of Dubai, you know, amongst our network and so forth. So I'm, I'm fairly regularly in the Gulf region, but I do see some really interesting investment happening there. Okay. Okay. Now, now something which you are very comfortable and very successful at doing, and that is delivering in the social media space sort of influencing and I want to talk a bit about the hot topics being discussed there so beyond the buzz around generative AI and AI in general because we all know that's been discussed there what are the innovations uh, are currently disrupting say fintech um, if you could identify you know two sort of noteworthy advancements hmm um well, you know, I mean, the the one area I'd say, which is is, you know, I've I've said it a couple of times during the 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 session, but um, the the emergence of the mobile wallet as a concept, I think that's that's still going to be massively disruptive over the next decade. And I, when I talk about super wallets, yeah. I'm really talking about this concept of wallets to do more than just money. And one of the areas that is going to be most disruptive to banking and fintech together is this um, era of AI-based agency, 
So what happens when you give your AI in your wallet Mm -hmm. agency to go and pay bills for you or to go and book a restaurant for you or something like that? Um, That is in a very basic form what we would call a smart contract. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we look at how small businesses and supply chain and, and you know, corporations will operate, you know, in the, the mid 2030s and in the 2040s, yeah. there's going to be a lot of this sort of smart contract um, you know, ecosystem that will emerge. The, the really interesting piece of that is today we don't have any of that infrastructure. You can't run a smart contract for a company that wants to automate their supply chain or the manufacturing processes, for example. You can't automate that on a core banking system in a bank. It is net new technology and infrastructure that's required. So um, when we see what's happening in the crypto space and CBDCs and, Mm -hmm. and this type of thing, people have to understand that it's not about just building digital money. Um, It's about the fact that you can't use traditional dollars, fiat currency, the pound, euro, to run smart contracts in an automated fashion. It works a little differently. You have to have rollbacks that, you know, you have to have certain protections in, you know, um, how do you deal with transactions that are not initiated by a human, but are initiated by an algorithm? You know, how do you have to sign Mm -hmm. those and authenticate those, et cetera? Um, And, you know, how does that smart contract get managed? Where do you cross over from, you know, traditional fiat, currencies in a traditional bank account and they those get moved into the smart contract ecosystem Mm -hmm. you know all of all of this uh you know there's a lot of questions around but i would say we're just at the very start of our conceptualizing Mm. of what what this sort of world will be but you know by 2050 probably half of uh, um, you know developed economies will be automated you know, mm, with, yeah. um, you know, auto- autonomous marketplaces, autonomous companies, you know, and so forth. And, um, you know, that that's because if, if you understand capitalism and you understand how we've thought about economics, at least the last hundred years, that mm. productivity is a core driver there. And the, the most the most productive you can be is a fully automated setup, you know, with, without human intervention. And that's obviously where the investment's pushing us. Uh, now from influencer to being influenced, let's look at who you um, look to, Brett. So um, can you name up to two individuals who have significantly influenced your views on fintech and banking and what aspects of their work resonate with you? Wow. Um, good question. On the uh, the fintech and banking side, I mean, um, I do tend to be quite um, I have to be a bit of a pastist or a historian in respect mm-hmm. to banking to be able to relate it to, uh, you know, back to uh, the future. So, um, you know, I often talk about the Medici Bank, you know, sort of the foundational elements of banking in Europe coming, you know, emerging out of Siena and Italy mm-hmm. in in the, uh, you know, the uh, 13th and 14th century. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I would say uh, there's that, but, um, for, for me personally, I've always been enamored with the world of science fiction and, you know, my, my work as a futurist has mm-hmm. tend to be me sort of looking at short-term sci-fi. Um, so <laughs> I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the, the great science fiction greats, but I'm, I'm very grateful to have in, interacted with some of these uh, um, thinkers, uh, you know, on my show in recent mm-hmm. times, like Kim Stanley Robinson, who's probably one of the greatest living um, science fiction authors in respect to climate. Um, wrote an incredible series on the colonization of Mars. Um, uh, 
Kevin J. Anderson, who writes for the Dune Universe with Brian Herbert, Frank Herbert's son, um, you know, I count as a friend, David Brin, um, you know, um, and, uh, you know, I'd have to say um, Elon Musk with his, his first principles approach, although I'm not a big fan of his politics of late, um, you know, people like Peter Diamandis with the X Prize, you know, because um, I think these people are contributing um, really meaningfully to the conversation about the world of the future. Okay, so I see you're loyal to the Futurists and the Futurist Network as opposed to fintech and banking, but I'll let you off on that one. Sorry. Well, <laughs> on the fintech side, you know, on the fintech side specifically, um, oh, you know, um, is, it look, too, I, I, is it too a young, to a younger industry for you to? Have no, some... like you know, obviously, um, you know, the the creation of PayPal was was a, a right. significant moment Steve in Parker. time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, um, that was definitely a uh, um, a key element. Um, I, you know, I think uh, we will look back on Steve Jobs, and 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 we will say in in you know in thirty years that he really did change the way we thought about business because a lot of the major brands we have today. Um, you know, uh, 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 have a sort of emerged on top of that smartphone ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I, while we can talk about fintech specifically, um, you know, and I've got great friends uh, that have worked in, in that field, you know, the guys who first uh, invested in Movin back in the day, the, the Anthemus, uh, um, you know, venture group out of, out of London, um, my friend, Chris Skinner, who, you know, has also been an author in the space and yeah. you know, we worked together for many years. There certainly are people that I've collaborated with the team at, at uh, Swift, Cybos Inner Tribe, you know, for over um, 10 years, I've been attending mm -hmm. that and working with their team and a lot of the household names like mm -hmm. Wise and Revolut and so forth came out of that a tribe program as well so um you know but that's uh they're, they're people i have enjoyed collaborating with uh, you know over the past few years because mm -hmm. you know it's it's like it's not it, you know the 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 foundational people that could be inspiration for the next generation we've been in the trenches just the last 10, 20 years doing doing the stuff right mm -hmm. yes we have we have I've actually asked that question to another guest and they mentioned your name. So you have to listen to that episode to find out who's mentioned Outstanding. You. <laughs> Outstanding. So, okay. Um, I've obviously got very good taste. <laughs> obviously. obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I can't possibly comment. <laughs> okay. <laughs> let, let, let's end this episode of Heads Talk um, with this. Um, we've done a bit of that, actually, but let's continue. Let's looking ahead. If we were to reconvene next year to discuss trends in... Not just fintech. Let's just talk about futurist trends, since that's your bag, and perhaps emerging markets. What topics um, do you anticipate we will we will be at the forefront of our conversation, mm. other than AI, please? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, look, I, I I think um we are we are going to be pretty concerned about immigration still. Mm -hmm. Um, I do think that people movement is becoming a really contentious issue. It's also becoming a competitive issue. Many economies around the world are starting to compete to attract immigrants. You know, we see that in Portugal, Italy, Dubai, Spain, you know, um, Thailand, Indonesia, and so forth. Um, so it's quite interesting to see those problems. Um, I do also think that one of the flow-on effects of artificial intelligence is going to be, we are, uh, we're going to start to see 
many of the traditional maladies and diseases and conditions that have uh, emerged over time, you know, we are going to have these new tools to start tackling them and accessibility to gene therapy in these next generational um, treatments that, you know, Mm -hmm. are going to be really uh, powerful. That's going to be an issue. Like, you know, um, can, you know, can the general person afford access to these gene therapies? that are going to cure cancer or eliminate Parkinson's or Alzheimer's or, you know, maybe even as as we start talking about things like, like longevity treatments um, and mm-hmm. uh, so forth. Um, the other thing that I think um, will be an issue we'll be talking more about next year in, or in 12 months time is um, data and the role that data plays in respect to the world of AI. So who should own your data? Yeah. Can, should yeah. you be able to monetize your data? We spent a lot of time with the GDPR and other things like that, trying to restrict or keep data private. But now we're realizing that the big challenge actually is how do we value data? And how does that date, how does that value uh, get exchanged from an individual who you know, generates that data with their life activity, for example, versus say an, a company like Facebook that utilizes that mm-hmm. data. Mm-hmm. So I do think there'll be a lot more conversation, you know, as we're seeing with um, generative AI in respect to art that's generated from, oh. um, you know, the artwork of uh, mm-hmm. professional artists and so forth. I do think there's going to be a more general conversation around data ownership. Mm. Let's, uh, if, if it brings a point, which is interesting in terms of data privacy. Um, do you find that it's it's not, it's not a sort of as a big issue in sort of Asia as it is in, in Europe, where they have stringent rules and regulations on that? Uh, you know, uh, it's very interesting um, that Jack Ma, who of course is not so much in the public eye today because of uh, various things, um, mm-hmm. but J- Jack Ma, uh, you know very famously made a comment is there's it is you know there's no such thing as privacy anymore in the internet age and others have expressed similar similar thoughts into that respect but um and and that is because you know the more technology we immerse in the system the more that this data gets exposed and the harder it is to to keep private and mm-hmm. part of the problem with the existing european approach to data is that we treat all data the same which is all data that involves you should be, you know, you should be able to have control over it. But let's be honest, not not all data is created equal, you know. So your your bank account information, you know, that should be kept private. Your your biometrics and identity should be private. Your children's DNA records should be private. But you know what coffee you like at uh, Starbucks or or Costa, that that's not as much of an issue. And so I think we do need um, slightly different ways to deal with different classes of data. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that identity as um, as sort of foundational to who we are in a digital system, I think that needs to be heavily um, uh, regulated and protected. I don't think there should be a role for a private industry to manage your identity. I think it has to be a part of national um, digital mm-hmm. infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but that also brings up civil rights concerns yes. and things like that, obviously. Yeah. But I, you know, I think all everything, if you think about the world of the 2030s, 
almost every service that you engage in, you know, every interaction you have with the government or with service providers in your economy is probably going to be, have a digital component or be purely digital. And, uh, you know, in that instance, you know, you must have very robust identity infrastructure to make sure that you are who you say you are and so mm, forth. And mm, mm. your mother's maiden name, your date of birth, you know, your first century form signature, you know, mm. um, those things, you know, your plastic drop driver's license, those things are just not secure enough or robust enough to work in the mm. 21st century. So we need to rethink, you know, what, what identity is for, you know, sort of the the digital or smart economies emerging in the future. Did, did, I, did I hear you wrong? Did you say that government should control the data? I know you said private sector should not. Uh, no, it, identity. Control? identity oh right i i think you used the to government kind of worms if you said that yeah yeah no 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 i do i think that um uh i think the next phase of regulation around data you know moving from gdpr will be to data ownership and we're seeing um brazil is working on this right now um china is working on this right now the mm -hmm. a rec recognition that an individual owns their data and should be able to have um, some control over where that data goes. And, um, you know, I think that then that, that solves the problem. Well, blockchain is definitely a medium that we could use for that. Um, the problem that blockchain has right now is, um, you know, transactional throughput um, mm -hmm. in terms of the amount of, uh, but, you know, certainly you could do self-sovereign identity components on blockchain. Mm -hmm. That's uh, something that would be uh, viable. But again, I think you are going to need to have some centralized authority mm -hmm. that recognizes that this is your signature, this is your face, you know, um, and yeah. so forth. And, and you know, it, it can be uh, recognized. And, and you could have that consensus base. You could have banks and hospitals and governments and others sort of built into that ecosystem. But yeah, um, yeah. I, you know, but on the data more generally, no, I don't think the government should own the data. I think the individual should own the data and decide, uh, you know, what happens. So, you know, one of the things that um, I'm working on is a data wallet, actually, yeah. that, yeah. you know, could, would be combined into your super wallet so that you could ha set up on, with AI that sort of agency that, um, you know, goes out and says to these organizations, I've got this set of people or I've got this uh, individual that has this data about his purchase behavior or his driving habits or something like that, and he's willing to share it with you on this basis. Is, you know? is that what you're doing with Barack? No, well, um, that's uh, that's one of the things for Barack, but this is a company out of um, uh, Silicon Valley called Drumwave, actually, oh, um, that's been founded by a guy called Andre Veloso, and they have the they have one of the first uh, data wallets. Mm -hmm. But this is something that um, you know, I've been interested. I worked with AliPay and uh, Tencent, WeChat Pay on some of the mm -hmm. things they did in China with the early wallet stuff as mm -hmm. well. Um, but yeah, the, I, I think um, you know, like. Your your personal space for your medical records and your your financial records and so forth is going to be uh, this um, you know thing that we would you know approximates a wallet today, but it's going to be controlled by you. And it's mm -hmm. going to be held in the cloud and accessible by you know the other players in the ecosystem, mm -hmm. and your AI that you have will will sort of operate or mandate or manage that you know administer that from a day to day perspective. So, for example, if you go from one country to another 
and you're making a payment, you won't be tapping your phone or tapping a card in, at a point of sale in the future. You'll just likely walk into a store and you'll walk out and the AI will, you know, your AI in the cloud, or, you know, instantiated on your phone or your smart glasses or your watch or your car will then communicate with the AI that represents the merchant or the store mm -hmm. and sort of do that stuff automatically. But, um, you know, and the same when you walk into a doctor, a doctor's office, um, then the doctor is already asking to have your medical history and pull that in and run run a genetic panel or run some AI-based diagnostics on that to give you give you the best results. So there's the types of interactions that I would expect in the 21st century for the, this type of wallet construct. I'm sort of imagining you won't actually walk into the doctor's surgery. You'll have sort of a, a VR and AR experience. That's possible, doctor. yeah, yeah. Rather than um, physically walking in the, you're showing your age, Brett. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you're right, and and that's that's where it gets interesting because you know, um, if you think about how we're going to uh, think about medical treatment in the future, you've made a good mm. point. Is that um, you know, um, uh, within a, a very short period of time, we are going to learn that the best medical advice comes from a human doctor paired with AI. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that you're, you know, one of the first questions you're going to have for a doctor is, are you using AI? Because the best advice is going to come from that sort of augmented I trust suite. AI. <laughs> yeah. Well, AI, yeah, yeah. AI says no. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, you know, I I do think the AI is probably not going to give you the, you know, the same bedside manner. And, and if there's something <laughs> serious, I'm sure the AI is going to say, no, this time you really do need to go see a doctor. <laughs> Yes, I know we're joking and digress a little, but it was a very, very valid point there. Um, thank you so much, Brett King. Just a delightful conversation with you today on Heads Talk. Many thanks for your time and insights. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining me today on this episode of Heads Talk. Don't forget to subscribe to the show via my website, elainepringle.com forward slash Heads Talk, wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, I'd like to thank our sponsors, guests, and you for helping to make the show possible. Please join me next time where I'll be featuring more executives, C-suite leaders, and heads of multinationals. Heads Talk podcast with your host, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter.